Hello guys, welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Aransa Sali, and sometimes I'm not that smart. I am smart enough, however, to be back today for episode two of the podcast, which, based on my past track record, keeping a journal is already very impressive for me, so I'm feeling really good about this. Today we're going to be talking about contraception and its relationship to feminism, and I'm very excited to get into this topic because I have so much to say about this. I think it's a topic that we should all be making an effort to talk more about in our daily lives. But before we get started, though, I just really quickly want to say a massive thanks to everybody who listened to the first episode and everybody who reached out to share your thoughts about it. In this house, we love constructive criticism and we appreciate feedback. I know that I definitely have a ways to go in learning the art of the podcast, so getting things from you like, hey, speak slower or speak faster or do whatever it is that you're feeling a little bit differently is actually really useful for me to hear. I appreciate anyone tuning in because I really care about the things that I'm going to be talking about, and I think that there's potential to have interesting conversations about them, not just within the episodes, but hopefully beyond the episodes themselves. Anyway, with all of that in mind, let's get to the meat of this episode. I'm going to be talking about three different issues relating to contraception. Let's do it. Now, I don't know about you, but contraception was always quite a taboo topic when I was growing up, and definitely more so probably because I grew up in a largely conservative and religious country, which is Mexico, where it was a thing that we knew was there, but you never really directly addressed it in a conversation. I can definitely see that attitudes towards open conversations about issues of contraception have dramatically changed only in the last maybe five to ten years. But when I was young, it was never something that I could have seen myself speaking into a microphone about. Certainly not in an environment when I knew that somebody other than my mom would potentially listen. I don't think I really even had many conversations about contraceptives with my friends until we were all adults. Of course, that is all very much to do with my particular upbringing, and is generally not the case anymore in my life. My friends and I compare experiences, and we give each other recommendations, and none of us ever feel like discussing the topic is strange or shameful or wrong. But I know that that is not the reality that a lot of people who menstruate experience, and that it can be harmful to still live under that taboo. So we're going to be talking about it more and more until it becomes normal. I want to begin by giving a little bit of context about the development of contraceptives and placing where we are now in the historical picture of the topic, as well as what its relationship has been to women's liberation. Also, quickly, I will be saying women in the context of the history of contraception. Of course, contraception and pregnancy is not a unique issue to women, but in positioning myself within certain historical contexts and conversations, it is the easiest way to speak about these issues. So I want to start with ancient contraceptive methods, and I will be jumping quite dramatically from ancient civilization to modernity because the things around contraception at those particular times will have more to do with the future points that I make in the episode. There were a variety of things that people from different cultures did in ancient times to control pregnancies. Most early methods of contraception can be grouped into three main categories, which are actually not that different to the categories that we would probably use today to talk about our contraceptive methods. 
The first group was plants, and I suppose that you could take that place now of oral contraceptives, for example. Certain plants like the sylphium plant, which was native to the north of Africa, but is now unfortunately extinct, were ingested by people to protect themselves from pregnancy. There were other plants like Queen Anne's lace, which is actually still being used in some parts of India today, and the knowledge about how to use these plants and when to use these plants and all that stuff was usually passed on from one generation to the next matrilineally. That means that it was knowledge that was carried by mothers and given to daughters and so on throughout generations. The second group was contraceptive barriers, I guess the early iteration of our modern condom. Ancient papyrus from Egypt and Mesopotamia has actually been found to outline instructions on how to mix different natural ingredients like leaves and honey or xanthan gum to create a very early form of the cervical cap. These things would have been used to stop sperm from making its way into the womb and therefore hopefully avoiding pregnancy. The reality is that a lot of the time, these methods, especially the cervical cap method, did not work. And I must stress, please do not try to create your own barrier contraceptive from random kitchen ingredients, because there will be consequences, most likely in the form of infections, and you do not want that. However, the last method that did work was the pull-out method, which is ironic because it's one of the least effective contraceptive methods of today, but was, according to historians, the most effective one for ancient civilizations. It was also interesting to read that some women would extend breastfeeding as long as possible, sometimes as far as even three years as a contraceptive method. Because while you're breastfeeding, you're unlikely to have periods and therefore unlikely to get pregnant. We still actually have that in certain environments and it's called lactational amenorrhea method or LAM or LAM. Modern contraceptive methods, of course, are quite different. They started to come around in the early 20th century with condoms made out of silkworm gut leading the way and were entirely supported by women's organized movements in favor of worth control. In fact, the term birth control itself was popularized by Margaret Sanger, who was an activist for contraception and the first woman to ever open a birth control clinic in the United States. The clinic was closed after nine days, just nine days, because she was considered a danger to society, and she was persecuted for it a number of times. Her organization, however, eventually succeeded and is what we now know as Planned Parenthood. It's really important again to note that people's support of birth control was a worldwide scandal. In the US, there was a national ban on the spread of information on contraceptives and safe sex. And Europe was riddled with anti-contraceptive policy and church intervention, which made the official policy of most countries in the world to be abstinence before marriage and pretty much no options after marriage. Even countries which had initially supported access to contraception and sex education, like France had in the 19th century, radically changed their position after the First World War. This was largely because there had been such significant loss of life for many countries that governments now had a vested interest in increasing their populations 
also because they thought they were in danger and would potentially go to war again, which of course meant limiting contraceptive rights. The people who really noticed how different lives could be if contraceptives were accessible were initially women's liberation activists. There is really no way of talking about contraception and abortion even without talking about feminism. And it's very simple to see that because people who get pregnant don't have the luxury of not worrying about getting pregnant. But even amongst these groups, there were those who had some options and there were those who had no options at all. The people who were being most negatively affected by the inability to control birth were working class women. Wealthy women were better equipped with navigating taboo topics of conversation and even hiding contraceptive practices because they had one, more scientific information, two, people who could actually go and buy things for them, and three, money. And even though there were many challenges that were publicly made against government intervention and church intervention as well from the 1920s to the 50s, once contraceptives like the pill entered the market, there was still a huge difference in accessibility for wealthy and non-wealthy individuals, especially in places without national health services. Another big element that affected the way the pill was regulated, and that still affects some elements of contraception, was heteronormativity, which in the simplest terms is the perspective that heterosexuality is the default, the normal or preferred sexual orientation. The pill was successfully produced in 1950, incidentally made possible by the synthesizing of progestin, which is the synthetic form of progesterone, by a Mexican scientist called Luis Miramontes. But it wasn't accessible in the market until the middle of the 1960s, and even then, it was only available for married, obviously, heterosexual couples. In the UK, married women required their husband's permission to get the pill when the NHS first started giving it out. In 72, contraceptive rights were finally extended to non-married people, and more and more forms of contraception, like IUDs and better condoms and contraceptive sponges, implants, injections, etc., started to be developed throughout the late 20th century and into the beginning of the 21st. To this day, we're still living with the legacy of these tight heteronormative controls over access to contraception. While you no longer need permission from your husband to get the pill from the NHS, you do need spousal consent to get a hysterectomy in most places in the world. And they are famously difficult to secure if you're a woman who's looking to get it under the age of 30. Because the fact that you have potential to become a mother is still seen as something that is too important to ignore. What I think is important here is to note a rather worrying trend in the entire history of contraception. Notice how it revolves around the female sex. Those papyrus from ancient Egypt were instructing Egyptian women on how to protect themselves from pregnancy. Even the discovery of progestin studied what plants Aztec women had used as contraception. It was the Margaret Sangers and the suffragists who initially took on bans against birth control, and it was the second wave feminists who brought abortion rights into the conversation, and it really continues to be women who are leading the way in these conversations. These days, only 39% of menstruating individuals in relationships where pregnancy is possible report they share the contraceptive responsibility of their relationship with their partners. 
I by no means think that every man out there wakes up and thinks to himself, well, I don't care, so I'm not going to do anything about it. But there is a huge issue in how the interests of a lot of individuals and large corporations like Big Pharma, who have so much power, align themselves with essentially dumping reproductive and childcare responsibilities on the shoulders of the pregnant party. By this stage, we've all heard the excuses about why male hormonal contraceptive methods are not available in the market. It was actually a debate that my students had maybe a year ago or so, and it was so sad and sobering to see how these boys, aged maybe 13, were shocked and angered by the fact that agony and mood swings or pain in the injection site were considered reason enough to stop production for an injected form of male birth control that had been proven to be effective in 2016, but increased risk of cancer and blood clotting and vaginal infections are not reasons to protect women in the contraceptive field. And look, it really isn't about comparing the severity of side effects. That's maybe a reductionary argument. But the truth is that medical practices and the medical culture of society have a huge impact on the way that we understand contraception as a whole, socially. And currently, there's frankly not much being done to topple this false notion that pregnancy is a responsibility which exclusively belongs to those who can get pregnant. None of this is to say that the existence of contraception is evil, not at all. In fact, there are huge elements in being able to experience sexual freedom as an individual. And sometimes they're even crucial in ensuring the health of some people remains good. I think the point of recognizing that there is a problem or an uneven playing field in relation to reproductive responsibility should be an incentive to readdress that in our personal lives. I strongly believe that a relationship cannot function if there's a taboo around communicating about contraception. And when I say redress the balance, I mean that if you are in a relationship with someone who expresses they don't want to be on the pill, or they don't want a hormonal IUD, or a copper IUD, or the implant, or the injection, or whatever it is, it is right and it is good to take an extra step in terms of responsibility. Messing with hormones has many, many consequences, and if men have the right or the ability to opt out from that, then so should women. I think caring for your partner includes making sure you have an open conversation about contraception and includes sharing the responsibility of it. Now that could look like taking turns across different periods of time when one party might take on the pill and then take a break from it. It might look like one party having to make a bigger commitment to the responsibility because the other is more greatly affected by it. The decision is absolutely unique to each relationship, but it is one that should be made as a partnership 100% of the time. And the same is true about conversations about what happens if contraception doesn't work. Because the burden of reproductive responsibility is tied to the burden of care responsibility, and that too should be shared within the partnership. Now, I want to circle back to that brief point that I made earlier about class and accessibility. Because other than the sex difference in reproductive responsibility, contraceptive poverty is another big issue surrounding this topic that I think is worth bringing into this episode. I'm going to split this into two potential conditions. The first is living in a place with free healthcare, and the second is not. <laughs> 
I'm going to begin with the latter. In this condition, obviously, it's really easy to understand why class would be an issue in putting contraceptive rights into practice. In the US, here serving as our go-to example of a country which, for some reason beyond me, continues to resist free healthcare, the American Pregnancy Association estimates people who need contraceptives spend between 20 and 80 USD a year on them. That is up to 646 pounds a year, which, considering pregnancy is increasingly common into the 40s, could mean you're investing these amounts of money into your sexual life and your sexual freedom for decades. Now, to some, the numbers might seem payable or totally reasonable, but remember, minimum wage in the United States is $7.25. So for people who might really need contraception, it isn't always easy to access. I also want to stress that these numbers are the case for people with some form of insurance. For those without insurance, who are the majority, contraception becomes completely unaffordable. So you live in this cycle where reproductive and care responsibility is not only something you can't escape, but something that will significantly impact the overall living conditions of families for generations. So in scenario one, class is a huge determinant of who gets to enact contraceptive rights and who doesn't. Let's go to scenario two now, where contraception is free for everyone. Now, you obviously have a huge advantage here, but here comes the issue of information and education and safe sex practices. Because contraceptives might be accessible, but without formalized sexual education, which is far less likely to be present in low-income communities, as is the case in the UK, and certainly the case in Mexico, many people don't know how to use contraceptives, which they should use, how to actually access them, and how to take care of themselves once they have. So even in countries where healthcare is free for everyone, a large number of studies have concluded that low-income individuals are at a much higher risk of having unplanned pregnancies than the wealthy counterparts. Once again, they are trapped into this reproductive cycle of poverty. Access itself is not enough. Education and information are a part of securing true reproductive freedom and empowering people to live their sex lives in a secure way. The way that contraception empowers many people to reach higher education because they don't have to worry about dropping out, getting better jobs because they can choose when they want to start forming families, and so on, and just being in control of their relationships and their lives should not be something that is exclusive to the wealthy. Beyond all this, there is the element of contraceptive cultures differing across the world. Now, right now I'm speaking from a privileged perspective, where even if I come from a country where sex and contraception remain somewhat taboo, I grew up in a quite liberal family, and I now live in a very liberal country. But most of the world does not live like this. For many people, I'd even dare say most people in the world, the liberating contraceptive revolution is something that hasn't happened yet. Solving these problems in the West is a good start, but it's really important to be aware that it is only that, a start. People living in conflict areas or in areas where there is religious restriction or oppressive government intervention, this is where the conversation about contraception is most needed to be normalized, and sadly, it's where the least amount of information exists for people's access. 
And by the way, even in places where contraception seems to be a non-issue, that is very rarely the reality. I cannot count how many times I had a conversation with friends who had encountered what we used to call English condom hate, which was basically English guys in university, and I honestly have no idea why it happened to just be English instead of all British because we lived in Scotland. But I I'm just saying that it's not the rule. But for some reason, we found that particularly English men refuse to wear condoms. And perhaps it goes back to the issue of responsibility being commonly placed only on one party. But another thing that I take from it is that medical advancement and healthcare policy, even when it's liberal and even when education is there, must also meet a change in the cultural paradigm. Nowhere in the world has fully rid itself of the negative narratives that surround contraception and abortion and unplanned pregnancies, but hopefully having more and more conversations like this can help and can encourage you to take the conversation further. The last point that I want to get into in this episode is sort of an outlook into the future. And this is because I recently came across a really interesting article um, and it's all linked in the show notes, by the way, every source, everything that I've cited, everything, about new generations moving away from hormonal contraception as a general rule. And it's interesting personally because hormonal contraception has never really been an option for me, but I did not realize that there was a generational change that was taking place as well. Everything I read about this seems to suggest that there is a two-pronged pattern of action happening around this turn away from hormones. The first thing is people just switching to a non-hormonal method like the copper IUD, which I actually think is the only non-hormonal one other than the condom. Anyway, the copper IUD sits next to the hormonal IUD as the most effective form of contraception if used perfectly and has been a great option for people with hormonal conditions for many, many years. I think probably the copper IUD is also a great option because it lasts for years and you don't have to think about it at all once it's been placed. Of course, it does come with its own set of side effects, which means that it isn't the perfect option for all people. But in terms of simply moving away from hormones while staying within pretty standard forms of contraception, it makes sense to me that it's becoming very popular. A big issue that I mentioned before are the consequences of taking hormonal medication for extended periods of time. Dr. Sarah Hill, who wrote a book called This Is Your Brain on Birth Control, did a lot of research into the side effects that people who were on the pill or other forms of hormonal contraception were experiencing. And she was actually inspired to begin this research by her own experience of quitting the pill after a decade and suddenly feeling like a whole new person. She says this in the book. Hormones influence the brain, and when you change the hormones, you're going to change what women's brains do. I think that honestly, that's just the best summary of what happens. Many people experience depression and anxiety-like symptoms on hormonal contraception, and it's far more likely that you will be on antidepressants if you're also on the pill. Some experience changes in their libido, and other people actually feel a lot happier and control their acne and control PCOS, and it's good for them. There is no single path that all people in hormonal contraception experience, but everyone does experience something because hormones change everything, and many don't want to, so they're leaving the hormones behind. 
So let's go back to that second pattern of change in contraception practices. There is a movement towards more quote-unquote natural means of regulating reproduction. There seems to be a growing number of people who just don't want their bodies messed with in terms of contraception, and honestly, that's completely understandable. So what do these people do? While there are a bunch of relatively new cycle tracking apps that boast high levels of effectiveness when used properly. And it's funny because when I did research about old methods of contraception, that seemed to be a very common one throughout history, simply tracking fertility. Of course, nowadays it's not just about ticking boxes of a calendar and keeping track of one's cycle. We have technology and temperature measurements and ovulation tests and so on, and these apps are becoming more and more effective, and I can definitely see them becoming a real viable option not too far into the future. I did have a thought when reading about this, which was, oh no, this is like a Gwyneth Paltrow type pseudosciency scam that potentially will hurt people. But it seems like it isn't, and much like the pill empowered a generation of people who wanted to be sexually liberated and to make choices about their sexuality, a whole new generation is now liberating itself from the consequences of decades of hormonal medication, which, as we mentioned before, was a burden that was placed specifically on one of the sexes. Overall, I think it's probably something good for people who really need it or want it, and potentially also a more accessible option to those for whom healthcare remains a challenge. So the outlook into the future of contraception seems to be focusing on remedying some of the pains of the past. There's expanding the reach of contraceptive options and information about it to those who still have not secured access to it at all, or developing new ways of securing reproductive freedoms for those who were never quite the fit for the old ways, and sharing the burden of choice, of action, and reaction to everything that's related to contraception and sex. I think, all in all, we are extremely lucky to live in a time where there are options, even if those options still leave a lot of work for us to be done. And we honestly, because we have those options, have also the responsibility to continue to engage in this conversation and normalize it as something that is absolutely going to be a part of the lives of the grand majority of people in the world. I hope that you always feel secure looking for information and support in terms of contraception and sexual freedom. I know that if you feel ashamed or uncomfortable, it's likely to be because that's a part of the narrative that this world created long ago to control the way we make choices about our sex lives. You are absolutely not shameful, and you're completely entitled to contraceptive support. Just as last time, I hope something that I talked about in this episode has either made you think or feel, and that you choose to come back and join me next time for another lovely conversation. On the next episode, we're going to be talking about minimalism as an ideology and how it has completely changed my life and could potentially do some pretty cool things for you as well. My name, much like at the start of the episode, is still Aranza Sali, and this has been Not So Smart. You can find me on social media if you want to get in touch at Aranzaai. That is A-R-A-N-T-Z-A-A-I on Instagram or wherever else your stalking abilities might lead you. Thank you so much for joining me and catch you next time. Cheers. <laughs>